Welcome to Reputation Town. After a long hiatus, welcome back. It's the Reputation Town podcast. This is Warren Weeks, and I'm joined by John Pernak. John, lovely to see you. It's been a long time. Probably some people wondering if our podcast was still a thing, but here we are. How you been? We're back. We're back from cancellation. Self-imposed. So yeah. it's... Uh, we were kind of laughing before we hit record. We forget how to actually, like, what to record. I'm not even sure I'm <laughs> going to remember how to upload this thing later, but... Uh, it's been a pretty busy couple of months, and I guess that's what happens when you have a podcast. There's not a, uh, a revenue generator. It's a cost center, and it ends up just becoming lower on the priority. But, like, this is um, – we'll do whatever we can to crank them out on a more regular basis. Does that make sense? It sounds good. So before we jump in, and there's been a lot of reputation-related stuff that we're going to hit on today. Um, anything in the off-topic news department? What's been going on in your life? What's occupying your mind these days? I don't know, just like you and I were talking, it seems like it's a busy time for communication stuff. A lot of people care about their reputation, I guess. It's a trendy topic. Yeah. Do you have allergies? Are you a little bit, by not this? too much. It seems, I heard it's like one of the worst years for allergies and I've been sneezing like crazy. So if it, if it sounds like I have a cold, I'm like, I'm, I've been uh, stocked up on reactants. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we get through. If I have to sneeze, I'll just like mute it. Um, Anything you're reading, watching, anything you found, video games, anything in the last little while? Um, you know what I, I found, refound, or had knew, known about, but I finally had time to watch, was I watching that um, Star Trek Picard series. Oh, really? It's pretty good, yeah. Is it? Are they still making that, or is that kind of in the I can? think the third season was the last one, and it's all done, but I'm just making my way through it. So basically, isn't this he's like old and lives in a vineyard or something? Yeah, it's like sort of set in the future, but they revisit a lot of stuff from the past. Are they actually doing spaceship stuff, or is he just sitting around yeah. reading books? Yeah, there's, 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 all, there's all that sort of stuff. T, Earl Grey. Yeah. Does he have, like, <laughs> do they still have that kind of stuff, like little, little replicators and things? This, this, yeah, there's still that. How about the, uh, we haven't talked at all, but like AI, have you been messing around with chat GPT, mid-journey, stuff like that? Yeah, actually, we've been working pretty... Um, consistently on, on thinking about ways of integrating um, AI into our business. And in, in particular, you know, Microsoft, which has a big investment in ChatGPT and OpenAI, is incorporating the ChatGPT language model service into Office 365. And so if there's going to be tools um, available to everyone who has a, a, you know, a subscription to Office. And, you know, ours, we're starting with, you know, what are the what are the easy sort of manual things you can do uh, to, to have AI uh, make people more productive and work from there? So there's two camps, basically, that AI is going to replace everyone and everybody's screwed. And the other people saying you got to figure out how to use it. It's a tool like anything else, which I'm, I'm guessing which one, but which camp are you in? I'm in the in second camp. I'm in the it's going to make people more productive, let them for, focus on higher order things. Interesting. What do you think? I, I agree also, like having said that, you can't say that it's not going to decimate a lot of jobs. And uh, and, and I, th I think if you're going to be in the second camp, you actually have to figure out how to use this stuff and tinker with it and play around. Like it's really has its limitations. It's only going to get better. But uh, it's in it, the, the results are kind of scary sometimes. But I think you've got to figure out how to use it because every day you don't, I feel like you're kind of losing ground a little bit. So just I totally around, try it out. Have you seen these people prompt engineers making like mm -hmm. 350,000? Like, that's stupid. 
<laughs> That's like in 1997, getting a job is like, I'm an amazing Googler. That's <laughs> <You know? laughs> ridiculous. All right. Um, I, I will say the, uh, I'm reading, not reading, I'm listening to, you know, Bono from U2? Yeah. It's his uh, autobiography. It's like this huge memoir, 20-hour audiobook. And uh, listening to that, I'm about two-thirds of the way through. And I have to say, it's actually really, really good. Oh, interesting. And what's cool about it is I got the book for Christmas, and it's gigantic. And I had already bought the audiobook. And, you know, go out walking on the trails and stuff. It's... Uh, he has a lot of like original music in it and his voice, like his voice acting and just, it's super cool. So, uh, and I'm not even a huge fan. I like, I like them. Okay. But I just, I did Dave Grohl's book like that. Bono's book like that. And, uh, there's certain books that it's just really, really cool. So anyone who's oh, very uh, good, I'll keep that in mind. That. And this is brought to you by audible. <laughs> hit them up for sponsorship. Okay. Let's get into some stories. First of all, and I, I resent every time we have to talk about these folks, but Harry and Megan, got themselves into uh, the press the other day with a near catastrophic car chase. Um, we haven't talked about really any of these topics, but when you saw that, um, and I'm sure you thought, like, hey, we should talk about this on the pod. What are, your, what are your thoughts about what actually took place there? My first reaction was, this is bullshit. It sounds like <laughs> something totally made up. And in fact, the, the, the next thing I saw was a TV story interviewing the cab driver who was driving them. And the cab driver was saying, you know, it seemed okay. Didn't seem like a problem to me. And then it's like, okay, I get it. It was a publicist, a dumb publicist, trying to trying to like play off the whole Princess Diana thing. So foolish. Like, such a foolish thing to do. It just made them look stupid at the end of the day. And they're already, you know, looking dumber and dumber by the day, given this, you know, um, uh, pay no attention to me publicity tour they're, they're constantly on. So anyway, that's my two cents on that. What, what, what were your thoughts? Did you see that when South Park did that? Did you see the I South did. Park episode? Oh my God. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, go to Google and type in South Park, Harry and Meghan. And it's like, and they make they make them look like Canadians for whatever reason. Like with the the, the heads that bobble, but like, we want privacy. We, and they go on the, the, we, you know, the privacy tour. Um, I, in, in a way, I kind of feel feel bad for them, but like just kind of go. I don't care about privacy, it all. Go, this is like, Entirely of their own making. I'm trying to be empathetic here, geez. The, but the wording of it, and I saw Molly did a really good TikTok about this the other day, Molly McPherson, but the wording of it, the near catastrophic car chase, like that I find is uh, inflammatory and irresponsible as well. Like I'm like, what kind of tow truck did you need if it was near catastrophic? Like I drove my kid to school today. It, was it nearly catastrophic? Because nothing happened, right? So the the precision of words and just, we, we talked about this, there's a laziness in in just word usage and the sensationalism and, uh, and even bringing that up, the memory of, of his mother, like it's, it's, it almost makes it, Oh, I can't talk about it. I've seen people on like, you can't dare talk about this because of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, that it, it's just, it's all very weird. I just, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be a guest in, in their house. Just like, it's probably a weird vibe there. <laughs> okay. Um, we didn't want to spend a lot of time on that, but just, uh, so you think not much ado about nothing. And also if for anyone who's ever been to New York, I don't know how you have a two hour car, car chase. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you could walk faster than most taxis can drive. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, I think the lesson there is that for think of them as brands and what is your communication strategy for shepherding or protecting that brand? Like whoever they will have working for them is not doing them any favors is the, is the bottom line. Right. 
So, uh, King Charles, what are your thoughts about that? We didn't talk about this, but like, did you watch the coronation? Did you sit there glued to the television? I didn't. I, I, I slept through it. I watched some of the, the replay afterwards. It, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, that, that, it, the interesting thing about not that exact ceremony, but parts of that ceremony date back to the year 973. So it's extremely old and interesting from a number of historical perspectives. But, you know, and as much as like those things used to be at least 12 hours long and they, so they opted for the, the, the shorter version, I guess, uh, given (laughs) modern sensibilities, but even still, it seemed, I don't know, as much as I'm a monarchist, it seemed kind of out of place. You are? I didn't know that. Yeah. I like the monarchy. Did you know the jewels that he was uh, rocking that day? Do you know how much they were worth? Uh, I don't, but... It was... I'm, I, I'm trying to look it up here. It was... You can, you can go see them at the Tower of London if you're ever in London. You have to go like down into the basement of the the tower and through all kinds of... I'm not interested. Security. <clears throat> but it was in the billions of dollars. I, I'll bet. With a B, yeah. just that he was wearing. And yeah. I don't know what it says about me or my maybe... Uh, like my upbringing, but every time I saw him with that crown, I just kept thinking of parquet margarine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bud light. This is one, this has been going on for what, like a month, month and a bit. At least a month. And I know, I knew that we were going to chat about this eventually. Uh, It's a story that kind of can continues. And with a lot of these, I'll see it online. I'll see it on Twitter. I have this little folder on my phone, you know, like Twitter, uh, blue or whatever, put it in little folders. So reputation town, and I had never really gone and looked at like what I knew. I knew the basic gist of the story, but I didn't really know all the kind of ins and outs. And knowing we were going to record today, I went in and kind of did some of that. And I found some interesting things. So when it comes to the Bud Light situation, I made some some quick notes here today. And we're not going to recap it. Everybody knows what the situation is. But InBev, the company that owns all these beer brands, um, their shares are down 7.6% since May 4th. That was their investor call. Bud Light sales since May 6th, and we're recording this, what's the day today? 19th? 19th, yeah. They're down 23.6% compared with the the year earlier period. And uh, coincidentally, Coors Light sales are up 22.2%. Miller Light sales are up 22.8%. So it's a pretty pretty, uh, dramatic change. Uh, Why don't we jump in and, 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 and talk about, from a branding perspective, what actually started this situation? Because I think a lot of people are have a misunderstanding. I know I certainly did. What do you, uh, your understanding, what actually started the situation? And was there anything the company could have done to actually prevent this huge backlash? Well, my understanding of it was they, they prepared, you know, like, like companies do, they prepare kits for influencers. And they figure, okay, if I send the influencers some stuff, maybe it's going to be stuff that's particularly, especially branded for that influencer, they're going to then do a video with it, pr- produce some sort of content, and then we're going to get the uplift from it by extension. And they did that with this um, transgender uh, personality. I frankly had never heard of them before. <laughs> Dylan Mulvaney. Yeah. And um, and it kind of just blew up from there. Like it, it was perceived as some sort of broad-based campaign that the, the company was running. And they've been wrestling with, you know, uh, <laughs> for the past month or so it's i don't know it's it's i think they it's, in some some ways they're caught in a bit of a current of 
like right now in popular culture, transgender identity is something that's being talked about a lot mm. politically and otherwise. And so I don't know, it's sort of a, like almost like a perfect storm of things coming together for them around it. When I read uh, a couple articles today to find out what the actual cause of the, of the issue, like what was the catalyst? And it was basically one can, one can of beer that had this individual's face on it. And then um, Dylan Mulvaney made a, I think it was a TikTok, and it was part of a promotion, part of a contest, but we're talking about micro mini influencer situation here that had a hugely outweighed impact on on the brand. And we were we were chatting, like, what level in the company do you think would have been aware of this? Like, obviously, not the C-suite. They're not running by, hey, can we make a can with this person's face on it? At what level do you think this was, like, this sounds like this was done at a pretty junior marketing level, don't you think? That's a good question. I I think so, but I I'm guessing I'm guessing like for a brand like that, some level of. But I mean, like as a whole, this okay. We're gonna have a campaign. Oh, where it's we in go marketing. To a bunch of influencers, it's in marketing. Yeah. But they're not going and approving every single no. person who goes in, and so no. it's so it's so crazy that like, and the uh, the CEO of InBev. Let me see that. I want to get the quote right here. Was on an investor call and got asked about it. And he said, look, this is one post. It wasn't a formal campaign or an advertisement. The problem is this, you know, Dylan Mulvaney has 1.8 million followers on Instagram. And so that is, that that's, you know, that's the same as a lot of large companies. That's a huge, huge impact. Then you have Kid Rock shooting a bunch of Bud Light cans with the machine guns. And the result of all of this is that Bud Light has pissed off everybody. They've pissed off their hardcore beer drinkers. They've pissed off the trans community who thinks that they were using them in an inauthentic or kind of just like ticking a box kind of way. And um, this was this was a brand that was already on the decline. Do you, let's say they, they helicopter you in, Mr. Reputation Town, they bring you in and they say, how do we fix this? <laughs> what advice, if any, do you give them? Or do you just keep your head down and hopefully it just kind of melts away over the summer, over the summer drinking months, which are coming up? I, it seems like time is the antidote here for this, for this issue. Because you're right, they're kind of, they kind of have been boxed in because if they sort of disavow the thing entirely what they did, then it looks like they're, they're jettisoning the, you know, trans community and, maybe even even more broadly than that um and uh if they obviously give any sort of further credence to the campaign then they're going to just inflame the people who are upset with them so they're they're kind of stuck and so i this is where i feel like almost a neutralizing position where you can just let more time go by um is is probably is probably what needs to happen and then you know think about like i'm not, I'm not a brand person but or like a a, mark, a brand marketing person, but when I think about what they're what they're trying to do is that okay, so I got to keep communicating about something, and so I need to f- figure out like what path I want to steer for all my advertising, all yeah. my communications over the next six months, so that I can sort of stay in that non-offensive space to to let this get behind me. Yeah. I don't know what what would you do? Could they have prevented this? I don't think so, and. I think that's interesting for any company that the fact that you have these individuals in the world who are the, you know, they have basically a smartphone and a huge audience. You're going to see, I think a lot more of this disruptive. Like when we were growing up, this could never happen. An individual, remember how pissed off you'd be at your airline or whatever. You could never take down your airline until that one guy, if you remember in 2009, that guy um, out from out East in Canada had his guitar broken by United airlines. And he wrote that song. Yeah. That was the first time that the consumer kind of had a voice 
terrible song, by the way. And he's still, that that's his career now. He goes around and talks about that, that from a customer service point of view. But like, that was the first time that the customer had that kind of voice. And now you, you're, this needs to be um, something you think about at the, at the boardroom table. Like, but again, I don't know if they could have prevented. Now I saw, before we got on today, I saw a headline. That I think this is correct, that Bud Light is coming out with a new can that's going to be uh, camouflage, like military. They're having camo can. And like, ah, manly can, mm -hmm. you know, so like that to me seems to be connected to, to all of this. Tell this, yeah. And so, and I had sent you uh, a, a clip of the Ford commercial. So they had the Ford truck. Uh, many of you may have seen this, but there's these two Ford trucks covered in mud racing down the road and they get to the end and they hose one of them off and the Ford truck is like all adorned in rainbows. And uh, it's called the Very Gay Raptor. I'm not making that up. Like the Ford is calling it their very gay Raptor. Now I thought that came out today and I sent it over to you. And again, we want to do a little bit of research, bring a little bit of, you know, authenticity and, and some, some, you know, going to probe these stories a little bit. And I went in and found out that that video came out 10 months ago. So you have Ford came out basically last summer with an ad. Oh, my stupid dog is barking. And this becomes a news story now. And so, and I think people are trying to like cherry pick these and tack it on to the Bud Light thing and have Ford kind of deal with that. So uh, with the Ford one, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I think at some level, this is where as, as I guess culture evolves and, you know, like uh, gay pride week used to be something that I can remember 20 years ago was kind of not in the norm of, of conversation and now Pride Month is something that, like, I don't think there's a company, a large company that doesn't have some sort of recognition for Pride Month. And so I think this is part of it, the evolution and uh, of, of, of culture and, and um, acceptance of you know, people of different, you know, backgrounds and uh, perspectives. You know, maybe I mean, in this case, I think maybe what, what happened was not enough thought went into, you know, what is our customer base where's our customer base actually right now and if we do want to grow in the future and attract like a younger or different type of audience how do we do that more gradually like maybe there was more of a nuanced sort of uh approach to marketing that would be required for some brands but you know to me this is i i'm interested in when i watch them now trying to manage this i think they're trying to put it in perspective like to your point it was one can. It was like one one activation in a in an influencer campaign. Um, so let's not blow that out of proportion. But the, but the reality is that it has blown into huge proportions because yeah. you've got all kinds of customers and people doing videos Boycotts. and TikToks and yeah, exactly. And like you said, Kid Rock shooting the cans, <laughs> and that's taken off on life of its own. And so I, once that starts, like there's no way of constraining that. Like it's kind of like a an explosion, right? You don't. You can't, you can't bound it. Um, so you kind of have to let it run its course um, and then rebuild as you go. Doesn't part of this come down to people, and I, and I sadly include myself in this group, we're getting most of our news from social media these days. Like, I can't remember the last time I sat down with a paper, newspaper, flipping pages. Like, that was years and years and years ago. You know, all these stories I heard about on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram, and then you'll even see breakdowns of people talking about it. But like for me, I had to actually sit down and find out when uh, 
like I thought the Dylan Mulvaney thing was a massive multi-million dollar campaign and this is the direction of our company and it turns out to be one can. I thought the Ford commercial had come out this week and was kind of a reaction to Bud Light and I realized it's from a year ago. And so doesn't part of this talk about the erosion of mainstream journalism and like the demonization of journalism? You have uh, Donald Trump in 2016, enemy of the people, lamestream press and all that. And... Fewer reporters doing more work, layoffs in the sectors, their lunch is getting eaten by all these other companies. Um, what what role do you think that plays, the erosion in journalism? And even like when you look at politicians, like the, uh, the premier out in Alberta saying, I'm only taking one question per reporter now. I remember Stephen Harper with his velvet ropes, you can't go past the ropes. Like that to me just defies the whole reason that journalists are there. And isn't that kind of what we're seeing across all these different areas? I think that's a huge part of it. Um because you know, as you, I know you. I heard you say this before many times, and and I, I say it too. Like the news, the news media isn't some sort of like altruistic charity. It's a business or a set of businesses, and they have interests. And they need to attract viewers, and so in order to attract viewers, they gravitate toward things that are controversial or, you know, uh, interesting from different perspectives. What happens though is, and I've like we were talking about this earlier. I saw it most prominently when you when when Trump became president. You've got the news media operating in a cycle where they say something or they're covering a story, and it's okay. I got to cover both sides of the story, but when one side of the story is saying things that are demonstrably false, right? I in fact on th- files I'm working on right now, there are people who on one side of it who are saying things I I just are completely untrue. And journalists just run with it because, oh, someone has said that, so therefore it sh- should go in the story. And yeah, I'll get, take something from you too and balance it, balance it. But the reality is is that I can demonstrably show you with facts what I'm saying is accurate and what the other side is saying is just a bunch of junk and yet it gets run as if it's the same thing. So to your point, I think the news media does have real problems um, in dealing with these sorts of things. And when you know to tie it back to what you're saying about um, Bud Light, it's of course in their interest to make it seem like it's a bigger, bigger deal than it is because, Oh, it's a big controversy. So if I play it up, I'm going to get more, I'm going to get more readers. I'm going to get more shares, more likes than the rest. Do you know that the, um, back in the days, (laughs) back in the old days, it's funny. I had a, uh, I had a media training session recently at a client. I'm walking down this hallway and there's three newspaper boxes in the hallway and they're all empty. Like they might as well be like antiquities from another from another era, but I don't know if everyone is aware of this. That you know, back in the old days when you would the the newspaper would come out and you would you would kind of have a sense of what stories were were the most important. Like and and usually the editor would try to put the the most important stories on the front above the fold A one, and then you kind of go through the sections. Today, it's a completely different environment and everything is clicks and eyeballs and their back office is tracking which articles you're clicking on, which ones you're looking at, how much time, when do you click out of this? And they actually track how many subscriptions a specific story leads to, right? So if journalist X writes a, a story about whatever and they pick up seven subscribers, well, they're going to they're going to do more stories like that. Their editors going to and whether or not it is again objective or true or whatever, they're just they're 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 in survival mode and that like I don't know if that's the most um, helpful way to be deciding what stories you're going to cover is based on like how many subscriptions we generated. Oh, it's like the pop it's like populism, right? It's like 
<laughs> where the mob goes, I'm going to follow. Which is the definition of clickbait. And mm. I don't know if you've ever... Um, I subscribe to a bunch of different papers, Hamilton Spectator, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, just to, you know, support the industry. And I, su- I subscribed to the New York Times and I actually canceled my subscription. But I don't know if you know how difficult it is to actually unsubscribe from these places. You can't just, like, click a button. You have to call a number and talk to a person. And they try to, like, sell you on a different package. And and that's a lesson to anyone. If you have a subscription to any of these papers, you can actually call their um, call the number to, to unsubscribe. And they'll give you a massive discount, like 30 40 50% off your subscription price oh. for a period of, like, a year. And then after that year, it kind of cranks back up. But I put a little note in my calendar to, to call again, so... Um, all right, Elizabeth Holmes, the lady who won't go away. The little, you know, the hello, how are you? The the Steve Jobs suit, the deep gravelly voice, and the little uh, droplets of blood machine that did not work at all. So she's going to prison soon for 11 years. And the reason that we're bringing her up today is, you know, after seven years of virtual silence, she had a, uh, a kind of a puff piece, a rebranding piece in the New York Times with her in this little sweater no makeup. She's the doting mom. And uh, just, I would love to know how that story got created. But um, from a branding perspective, from a reputation perspective, uh, do you think this piece worked in terms of what she was trying to do and kind of reinvent her brand before she goes into the Gray Bar Hotel? You know, I want like to know how that came about too. Like what, what who pitches that story to an editor and says, I think this this side of Elizabeth Holmes hasn't been told yet, and I think we should devote space in the New York Times to it. Do you think someone paid for that? Mm. Well, I'd like to think that the you like to the, think the newsroom isn't. But, but like, here's another for thing: sale. every every newspaper's doing this. Like it used to be back in the day, advertorial sponsored content. They had to have a little. Like now, it's all, you know, you don't know. You don't know who is subsidizing the the story you're 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 reading, and like again, I don't know. Was she asked any tough questions? It seems like a bit of a puff piece, and you know, I don't know. And it's it's a pretty serious allegation, but like to me, it seems like someone kind of cut a check and said, "Hey, we'd really like this story to be like like from a journalistic integrity standpoint." I just I can't see how they would have, you know, she's going to the zoo and like there's one part, these little anecdotes within and, you know, as you know, she's a master manipulator from, mm-hmm. from what we've seen in the, the the documentaries and the podcasts and then the court transcripts. There's one point where I think uh, the journalist gets something on their shoe or like the dog slobbered on the shoe and Elizabeth Holmes is chasing them down with a little, oh no, let me get that for you and just kind of wiping it off their shoe. Like that, that's not... That just seems like a little over the top, you know. What oh, I mean? completely. Like that, that little, oh, like the, those are they're probably going to put that in the story too, which they did. So, like, who is this person? Who, like, who is she? The master manipulator who created this fake company and this fake technology and defrauded a bunch of people and and put a bunch of people's health at risk, or is she the doting mom bringing her kids to the zoo, chasing you down to get the dog saliva off your shoe? Well, she could be both. Right, deep. Um, but go to back to your point. Like, how is that news? Right, like, and, and why is why why is the why is the New York Times like devoting space to like like some sort of bullshit puff piece like yeah. that? Like, so it, it'd be different if it was someone who was maligned 
And it's like, oh, I'm going to tell the, the real story of, you know, like the person who was in jail for 20 years for the crime they didn't commit. And here's well, who they really are. Maybe she thinks she was maligned. I know she thinks that, but. <laughs> Do you know how many words that art, that profile was? No. 5,000 words. Are you kidding? That's tremendously long. That is ridiculously long. Who actually even read I, 5,000 words? Like, oh, God. Um. So from a reputation standpoint, I was thinking about this. Like, what are the lessons you can take away from this? Because I don't know this individual. I don't know her motivations. I don't know if she's person A, person B, person C, someone completely other, which is probably the case. But to me, it, it teaches you like 100 years from now, when people put in her name or her great-great-grandchildren look her up, page one of the internet is going to be the the turtleneck, the fraud, the prison. It's not going to be the sweater. So to me, it seems like a bit of a Hail Mary. And maybe maybe the only person that's for is for her, for herself. Mm. Before I go to jail, look at that nice thing I have up on my wall. But I think it teaches you the the potential downside of manipulating your public or professional persona to a degree like that where it can take over all these different elements of your life. It just seems like what a waste. What a waste. Yeah, fair point. Uh, um, we wanted to segue from that one into the coffee shop. And I don't know how those two kind of go together, but they seem to. There's a Toronto coffee shop. Do you want to kind of introduce this one? Yeah, so there's this Toronto coffee shop. It was called the, uh, I think it was called the Anarchist Cafe. Yeah. And they had, I honestly thought when I read about it, I thought it was a bit of a, like, there's a there's another place in Toronto um, where they on the menu all the all the food items are named after office supplies so you could like order like a a stapler uh, combo oh, right 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 and it's actually a burger and fries and so when you go and expense it um, it looks like you're expensing office supplies not not food yeah. So I thought it was a joke like that, but it was actually this anarchist cafe and uh, it was kind of like more of like an upscale cafe, but they went, had all of these sort of um, the persona of, you know, uh, 1960s radical fighting back against capitalism and the man. And they had a, a sort of a pay, pay what you can afford policy for one product at least. Uh, but then they, they made a big deal about, oh, we're going out of business. And then which drove all kinds of news coverage. And maybe it's just because I'm super cynical. When I saw it, I thought this sounds like just some, some kind of like attempt to, you know, use the, use the irony of it all to drive, to drive attention for themselves. Yeah. And this is another one where the story that I saw just like, just the very superficial delivery of the story was, you know, this anti-capitalist cafe is obviously going out of business after one year because, their, their business model is pay what you can. So who, you know, how, how is that a functioning business? And so I, like everyone else, thought, yeah, this is stupid. I put it into my, my folder to talk about on the show. And then today, just to do a little bit of due diligence, I go and I start looking around, finding out their website and talking, or not talking to you, but like finding quotes from the, the owner of this place. There were some, some wacky quotes, I will say. But like I went in and I found, this surprised me, that they have a menu and... 99% of their items have prices on them. And like, tell me if this sounds anti-capitalist to you. Americano, $4. Flat white cappuccino, six ounces, $4.75. 12 ounce latte, $5.25. Hot chocolate, five bucks. Mocha, $5.75. 
Earl Grey Blue Matcha Latte. I don't even know what that is. $5. Drip Coffee, pay what you can. That's the only item on their menu that's pay what you can. So, again, it's like a little bit of truth, and they just kind of smear it with this idea, throw it out in the news, and everyone has these kind of assumptions about it. Now, uh, what's interesting is that, and I just found this out today, is the place actually is not going out of business because the story generated so much coverage that they ended up getting a bunch of donations, I think, from, I think, some Christian organizations in the United States, I think, from Florida. And now they're going to stay open. So, I don't know. It's uh, it's another one of those, though, that I feel like the real, like, was it, would it be that difficult for a, for a reporter to just say, here's the actual story? They have this whole menu. The stuff's actually very quite expensive, and there's one one item that you pay what you can. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But you know, this is it goes back to your point about the decline of journalism. Like, I'm not sure those outlets have a time, or maybe they don't even have interest. It just it's an interesting story, so it'll get clicked. So they don't even care if it's it's accurate or not. Man, I think they missed an opportunity to call the place "Rage Against the Bean." <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would have called it. I think I missed my calling in life. Like brilliant. coming up with like little cheesy names for like restaurants and things. So, uh, you know, all the best to them. Hopefully they sell, um, sell a bunch of coffee. And actually I think this thing might end up being a boon for their business. Cause I'd never heard of it before, but now everybody has. Mm, okay. All right. Um, the, uh, I think the last one we had, unless I'm missing anything, you wanted to talk about, uh, a particular CEO, who is uh, kind of controversial and opinionated and the, the tension that can exist between CEOs and communications people. Do you want to jump in on that? Sure. I, you know, it's just something that is, I think it's, there's no one thing I'll point to, but Elon Musk was the sort of the, the catalyst for, for thinking about this, but there are other CEOs you run across where they're outspoken. They're, you know, they're not scripted. They're not going to, um, be bound by corporate communications teams who want, you know, sort of button down, you know, tightly scripted um, message tracks and that sort of thing. And it, it just, I find it like some may say, Oh, he's terrible because he's, you know, talking about all kinds of things that are so controversial, but have nothing to do with his businesses. And so does that, does that harm? Like you hear that frequently about uh, Twitter Oh, it's driving the advertisers away and whatnot. And as a communicator, it does pose a dilemma because on one hand, yeah, you would like to have everything sort of buttoned down and tidy and everyone following the same message track, but that's not at all who the CEO is in this case. And you're never going to, you know, handcuff them into that kind of approach. So what's right? Is there a right or a wrong here? Like if you were in that situation, Warren, at, advising him what, what, what would you be doing i don't think there is anyone in that position advice like i don't think he has a communications department or a function they might have some people to do some some tasks but i know that in toronto they had like 40 45 people here i think they're all gone at this point um i, I was doing <laughs> i was doing a talk this is kind of cool if you're listening to this and you want to have some fun um i was doing a talk at a college recently we we're talking about media relations and elon musk came up right they asked me thoughts on him as a leader and i said you know i i can't the only things i can say is like the guy is obviously a successful innovator and a business person i don't think he's a very good communicator and i said that i don't really know the person but those two things i can actually say with confidence and i said but if you want to look at what he's done to the media relations function at twitter 
have you heard about this? Like, if you if you send an email to press at twitter.com, do you know what happens? Oh, yeah, you get the poop emoji. You get a poop emoji back immediately. <laughs> and so I had some of the students in the class do it, and they're all, like, kind of giggling and laughing. And, I like, I don't know. I think that's, I think that's a little problematic. I understand some of the the knee-jerk response, and, uh, and there are good communicators and bad communicators, and I think that response is a, kind of a backlash to bad communications, but I think he's an individual who I think, ha- if, if he had someone in his corner who was giving him decent advice from a communication standpoint, would probably augment his brand and maybe save him some some headaches. To me, I think it's, and we've both dealt with you know many, many CEOs over the years, I think it entirely depends on the structure that you find yourself within. You know, if you are the executive of a company that is part of a larger, um, like let's say uh, you're, you're the CEO of a small company that's within a much larger framework and it's a publicly traded company. Well, you don't have a lot of freedom. You don't have the freedom of, of an Elon Musk. If you say the wrong thing on a panel discussion or you tweet out something stupid, you're gone because there are levels and layers. Someone like this, one of the most wealthy individuals in the world, he doesn't really have a lot of guardrails and and I don't know if you saw that interview he did the other day with CNBC. But I did. He, he said, you know, I'll kind of say what I want. And if I if the result is that I lose money, then so be it. And so that's his opinion. And that's his, and I think he's proven that he's willing to take a financial hit. Like the the transaction to buy Twitter was not, from a business standpoint, was not a smart decision, obviously. Like they, they said it's, I think, valued at half of what he paid for it, you know, less than a year after. So I don't know, like... So I don't think I'd be in the position where he'd be asking me for advice. But and even if he did, I'd like. I, there are certain people like someone. Um, I, I went to. Uh, I, I shouldn't probably say the company company's name, but there's a many years ago when I was first starting my business. There's a kind of high profile travel company, and they have a very kind of flamboyant and outspoken CEO. And the communications person was talking to me about the different members on their team and here are their strengths and here are their weaknesses and we want to make sure that they're able to deal with the media and public speaking and that kind of thing. And then we finally got down to the CEO. And this guy was interviewing a whole bunch of different communications firms to see who's going to do their training. And he says, when it comes to our CEO, what would you recommend as a media training approach? And my honest answer was, I don't think he needs, I don't think he needs it. And I think that would actually, based on this person's brand and personality, I think that would actually hamper that person. Um, They have shown that they're really quick on their feet. They're great with a quote. They're obviously good at this. And I think anything that I added would just be for me as opposed to for them. And he said, you're the first person who actually gave me what I thought is an honest answer to that. And I ended up getting the work. And I ended up meeting the person but not training them. And I'd put like, this is a, a controversial name, but I put a Don Cherry in that same for, for Canadian hockey fans. Used to be the, the color commentator on Hockey Night in Canada. You're not going to media train a Don Cherry. It's not going to help. It's only going to take away. And so um, now having said that, I don't think there are a lot of CEOs like Elon Musk. If you're the CEO of a hospital or if you're the CEO of a drill bit company or you're the executive director of an association, I think there are a lot more rules and guidelines and guardrails for you and so i think all those people should have a really qualified communications person giving them counsel especially today when when things you know you tweet out the wrong thing at home you have an executive who's sitting on the couch watching a basketball game or baseball game and they tweet out something thinking it's from their 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 individual brand which is kind of a gross term but they're doing it as a person and that can spill over and affect your life and affect your job so 
Um, for Elon Musk, I don't have a lot of advice, but for the typical CEO, I'd say like, you have to, you have to get good at this stuff. That was kind of a long rambly answer. That was well said, you know, I would, you know, I agree. You put them in the category of people who actually don't, you don't coach like they have their own, they're in their own space, but most people aren't in that space. I think that's the sort of takeaway is that, um, as you say, as you say, you know, you're, you're a short path from your latest tweet to being canceled and outed <laughs> as, as CEO. If, uh, if you don't uh, manage your affairs correctly. And th- they don't really teach this stuff in business school. Like some of them do, or they'll, um, the, the most, someone that they'll bring in a guest speaker or they'll do, uh, they'll do like a seminar, but I don't see this as a course that is, is that is taught in, uh, in business schools. And I really think that needs to be rethought. Strategic communications is like a must have. It's just as operations, distribution, finance, communications is, is at that table, whether it's a crisis or not, just from a, just from a, from a branding perspective. Like I mm. don't see how that's not a skill. And it's so funny that, um, not funny. It's just interesting that you'll work with all these CEOs and like, it's just, uh, a blind spot that can't even see those elements. It's so interesting. Yeah. And just knowing is knowing when to bring in help is the right, is a, is a skill you want to have for sure. Man blasted through all those topics in only just over 40 minutes. Anything else you wanted to bring up in this episode or do you want to? No, let's button it up. That's good. Wrap we'll this one up. Get another one in the can soon. Okay. I'm going to see if I can remember how to upload this thing. <laughs> <laughs> or if my password has expired, it's been a while. And we promise that we'll do this before too long. Uh, and if you have any stories you want us to cover, let us know. And I was thinking that we should probably try to get the uh, the panel back together. The one we did with, uh, we had like four, three or four yeah. communications folks was a lot of fun. And uh, That'd be we great. got some really good, really good feedback on that one. So uh, hope you have a great week. Thanks everyone for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. Talk soon. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.